Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel, you're gonna find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is gonna be on there. You're gonna find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts, all that you can follow along with. And the best part is that it's completely free. They're also around 10 to 20 minutes long, meaning if you're short of time, you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout. New workouts will go live on the channel every Tuesday and Thursday and they're gonna be accompanied by an amazing backdrop, which I'm sure you're all gonna enjoy. So if you wanna find the channel, just search Elliot Hassoon into YouTube and you'll find it very easily. And please subscribe. It makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Brian Keane. Brian is an author, online health and fitness coach, and the host of the incredibly popular Brian Keane Podcast. Brian has a gift of breaking down the sometimes confusing and conflicting world of health and fitness and is able to deliver his message in a digestible and understandable format. It's refreshing to speak to someone who's purely focused on making the world of health and fitness a better place versus trying to tear others down in the process. His experience within his own journey and the thousands of clients he's worked with gave us so much to discuss today. In this episode, you can expect to learn how Brian's experience as a primary school teacher helped him thrive in the world of health and fitness, the difference between those who have success within their health and fitness and those who don't, and where Brian believes the world of health and fitness will be in 50 years' time. So without further ado, Brian Keane. Brian Keane, welcome to the show. How are you today? Elliot, I am fantastic. Really looking forward to chatting. Likewise, I am very much looking forward to this. I've already extracted about eight minutes of gold from you. So apologies to the audience for not clicking record earlier. But yeah, I wanted to get straight into it and ask you to begin with, who is Brian Keane and what is it that you do for those who might not know already? Yeah, so super, well, probably won't be a super short elevator pitch, but elevator pitch, I'm an online fitness coach, uh, certified nutritionist, and I work with people in online programs, normally body composition, so weight loss, fat loss, toning up, and sporting performance with my other program. I've written a couple of books, I've written more than a couple now, I've written three books, so The Fitness Mindset, Rewire Your Mindset, The Keen Age, Mastery the Mindset, Free Lasting Fat Loss, all the bestsellers. Very fortunate with the amount of people that book and those books have been able to impact. And I'm the host of the Brian Keane Podcast. So the one of the top health podcasts, actually, my editor sent me over the numbers recently. We're one of the top health podcasts in the world at the minute, just with our per monthly downloads, which is incredible. But again, that's down to my guests. I can't take the credit for that. I'll give the, the guests and the amazing people I've been able to speak to the credit for that for sure. And uh, yeah, former primary school teacher, elementary school teacher, turned personal trainer, turned online coach, slash author. And yeah, that's what I do now. I work day to day with people in online programs. I write, I do podcasts, and I, I'm one of the very fortunate few who gets to live life on their terms and do things that they would do for free uh, so yeah long may that last that's a beautiful elevator pitch and i want to pick apart a few areas of that so first things first where did your health and fitness journey begin i gravitated towards sports very early on as someone that is a very or was a traditionally very poor student and as with most people you tend to kind of gravitate towards the things you're good at and i found sport and i still find sport very easily I pick things up very quick. You give me a five-minute tutorial on any new sport and I can pick it up quite quickly. I wasn't so good in the classroom. It took me a long time to get things. And although I've since realized that, you know, I love the Einstein quote that you judge a fish's ability to climb a tree, it'll go through its whole life thinking it's stupid. And there's other ways that people learn. And I was very good outside of the traditional academic realm, but not so good in a very structured environment, particularly with language barriers and being brought up to Irish schools, et cetera, and just things that confused me. And I started by playing sports. So Gaelic football, the local sport in Ireland, was kind of my jumping off point for health and fitness. And when I was 13, I started lifting weights to get stronger for football. I also wanted to look better. Like, let's call a spade a spade. Like every guy probably 80 to 90% of every guy that lifts weights is like, I want to do it for the girls. So I started to lift weights at 13. I joined the gym at 16. So my birthday present from my mom and dad when I was 16 was a gym. 
And over the last, I'm 34 now, 35, the end of this year, over the last 20 plus years, I've been consistently weight training, running, cycling, swimming, doing physical activity, doing either sport or physical exercise. And it's part of my routine. But I started with sport, lifting weights in my bedroom, and then joined the gym at 16. And I've been going four to five days ever since. Damn. And then obviously you transitioned to being a personal trainer, then an online fitness coach. But where did the primary school teaching come into it? So I have a kind of a weird backstory into how I got into the health and fitness industry. As you mentioned, Elliot, that going from primary school teacher into personal trainer. So I did an undergraduate in business studies. So my undergrad originally was in business, in marketing in particular. And I did a postgraduate in teaching to become a teacher. And I, from the day I left school, thought I wanted to be a teacher. It was highly valued in our family, in our circle. I had a lot of cousins and aunties and uncles who were teachers. And it was very much the logical path. This is what everybody does. This is what you should do as well. And I went to London to do my postgraduate in St. Mary's in Strawberry Hill in London beside Twickenham and walked into a teaching job pretty much off the back of qualification. Being a guy, being a male, being very heavily influenced in sport, I walked into a job and I was about 30 minutes into my first ever day of teaching. And I thought, fuck, this isn't what I want to do. I was like, I, I, I don't want to be a teacher. I was like, what, what am I doing here? I was in front of 30 kids in a year three classroom in London. And I was like, I don't want to do this. But to cut a long story short, I stayed at it for you know, what was nearly a total of four years. But for the next couple of years, I qualified and became certified in nutrition and personal training. And that came off the back of a conversation I had that Christmas when I came home. And I'd been working as a teacher for four months. So from September to December, and I was talking to my mother and I was just complaining. I was just being a big moan. Like I was having a complete whinge on why me? My life is crap. I hate my job. Pure victim. And she was like, okay, well, you know, her loving words. She's like, well, you're not a tree. If you don't like where you are, you can fucking move. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, all right. I was like, no, thank you, mom. But she also asked in that conversation, she was like, well, what would you do for free? And I'd never really thought about that question. And when she put it to me, I thought I would work in the gym for free. I would do something in fitness for free. I wouldn't care if I just had enough money to live and to eat and support my lifestyle to some degree if I was happy doing it. And that was a the start of the seed, I suppose, that planted into becoming what I do now and what I am now and who I help now. Because I went back to London that January. I signed straight up to a fitness instructor course. And from that point on, over the next year, when I got my level three personal training, my strength and conditioning, my certification in nutrition, sports nutrition in particular, and I started working with people in the evening. So part-time as a personal trainer and full-time during the day as a teacher. And for those next two years, I worked simultaneously. I worked doing both. And eventually, in 2014, I decided I'm going to make a go with this full-time. So I moved back home. I moved back in at my mom and dad. My sister gave her me her old Toyota Yaris that was as old as her. It was one of those cars that was like a, a, a cross finger every morning. It worked. You're like, please, 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 please work. And so I used that to try and get a personal training business off the ground. And thankfully, that went very well, probably better than I ever expected. One of the advantages of being in London working as a teacher and taking a side hustle as a personal trainer was I was able to get good at my craft. And I was also able to learn my mistakes in my craft away from the place where I ended up setting up the business initially. So that was just pure serendipity and luck because most people are rubbish when they start. Most personal trainers are crap when they start. We all are. We don't know. Like confidence comes from confidence and you don't have much confidence when you're starting something new. Going from zero to one is harder than going from one to 10. And I was a good personal trainer by the time I came back. So I was getting a lot of clients and a lot of clients quite quickly. Although I had no name, it was off where the mouth and referrals. And then over the space of several years, I was able to move online, which supported my lifestyle better after working with a trainer one-to-one on the floor for several years and transitioning to writing books, working in online programs with people, doing podcasts, you know, working with other potential revenue streams when it comes to sponsorships, affiliates, et cetera. Um, and I've been very lucky. And that's uh, kind of a long-winded way of going from a teacher to a personal trainer, what I'm doing now. There's a lot, obviously, in between, but that's the kind of synopsis of the story. Yeah, it's incredible. And what are some of the key lessons that you took from primary school teaching that helped you transition into personal training and potentially you still use today? Breaking down complicated ideas into the simplest form. I have been told so often 
with online courses, and I have online courses for personal trainers, so one-to-one business owners, personal trainers, moving online, scaling online, and I have nutrition courses, so certified nutrition courses. And particularly in those, even more so than my fitness programs, people will say, you'd know you were a teacher because you're breaking down and I'm trying to break down complicated things into their most simplest form. And that's effectively what you do with a teacher, particularly me. I worked in year three classroom, but I had a year one classroom for a year and I had year five for, for one and a half years. So you're taking things like compound fractions and breaking them down into simplest forms. And I'm doing the same thing now with nutrition. I'm breaking down how caloric intake works, I'm breaking down how macronutrients work, I'm breaking down how you know business works with your marketing and how social media works with your advertising, etc. So you're taking that exact same principle. It's just domain and you're switching them into another area. So I still do that to this day. That is probably the biggest one that I got because it's largely what I did. I don't do anything different. If you come through any of my courses or programs and you see me teaching the modules, it's how I used to teach a lesson. I would have my introductory point on what I was trying to bring into the conversation. I would have the main idea and we would pick apart and unpack it. And then I would have what's the plenary, the the evaluation of it all together and how it applies and I follow that same process now in my courses and my programs as I did when I was teaching decimal points or, you know, the tutors or whatever it was. Um, so I've been very lucky with that. That that was just, again, another look prop preparation and opportunity meeting that I was able to go down that avenue because I had the experience as a teacher. Yeah. Were you always proficient of carrying that directly over? Because I think that's a mistake that a lot of trainers, including myself, run into is that they start writing content for other trainers almost like they're just thinking about what their peers are going to think of it. So they start talking about moment arms and the most complex stuff. And then you realize, well, your audience who's listening and watching or reading and consuming your content has no idea what you're talking about, but we're all like, Ooh, we better impress him and our colleagues. So were you always very good at doing that? Cause I can imagine that's a major advantage. No, but for different reasons, I wasn't good at it similar for the reasons you mentioned or for the example you mentioned when we have a problem with our own self-worth and confidence and we're seeking that external validation particularly from other trainers who aren't your clients and aren't the people paying you that's an issue with your mindset that you probably need to address versus your actual knowledge around your topic and that i wasn't always great with and i think as you get better with your own confidence and as you get better with business in general because business is how do I bring the thing that I'm selling or giving away for free to the people who need it? And that's a very simple question to ask that some personal trainers can fail to ask in the beginning because they're trying to impress other trainers and they're using language for other trainers. And I've worked with people in the past in mentorship programs, masterminds, personal trainers who will be like, well, do you know what, what will so-and-so say if that's not the right nutrition point? I'm like, well, does that help your clients? Or does that help a potential client who might want to work with you? And if the answer is yes, then you post it and you put it out there and then you can break it down for them if you need to. That just comes down to experience with business mixed with your own craft and getting better at your own craft. Like I have no problem being called out on 99% of the things I posted online, because if you come to me and ask for individual context, I will offer where I was coming from with that post and why I did it. I, I tend to try and stay in my circle of confidence as much as possible. I don't go outside it that often. Sometimes I bring on a podcast guest where I'm not proficient in what they're speaking about, but I'm doing it for my own interest as well. And sometimes that piques really good questions for me because the audience is in a similar position. But what I post, my videos, my content and things I do, I'm confident asking or answering whatever the follow-up question could potentially be. And that comes with time. That comes with learning your craft. That comes with more confidence on how you can potentially help people. That comes with having a consistent message. My message, Elliot, hasn't changed online in fucking 10 years nearly. Like it's been largely the same. Find a nutritional strategy that works for you. Include foods that you enjoy. Make sure it's in alignment with your goals. Find a training program that works for you based on the goal. And it's all variations of that. And that hasn't really changed. So there's consistency. It's boring. Like it would make way more sense for me to grow from a hundred thousand followers to half a million by calling people out and you know saying this is horse shit and this is bullshit and no one should do this because it's tribal and it brings people in and it's a great growth strategy. And if you want to do it that way, by all means you can. There's a lot of successful fitness influencers out there who have done it. It's just not my truth. I would feel shit doing that. I wouldn't feel good. I don't want to call people out. They have their own perspectives, their own lives, and unless it's something that is completely setting people off on the wrong direction. And I tend to not attack individuals, I'll attack slimming clubs and things like that. Uh, a message more so than an individual 
just because it's not grounded in any nutritional science that I'm okay with doing. And I think as you get clearer with who you are as a coach, as your philosophy grows and you become better with it and you're open-minded enough to take in new influences that could potentially sway your direction based on the context, it makes it easier to deal with all of that. Um, so no, I wasn't always good with it, but did get better over time. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And that is what you see a huge amount of the moment. It's like the content that polarizes people the most tends to get shared the most. So there's the, yeah, there's the temptation to do it. But like you said, you've got to be, you've got to maintain your integrity. And when it comes down to the posting, it's like, do you want to grow just for the sake of numbers? Or do you want your audience to be the people who believe in you and that you believe in them and you're happy to have them following? So it's one of those, yeah, moral decisions you have to make of the temptation of like, mm, should I just polarize people? I think, like you said, attacking someone like Swimming World, for example, it, it makes sense, but attacking individual people seems to be the route that most of the people are going down. But maybe Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter might solve some of that. But I think that'll yeah, well, be a see, lot of, yeah. Yeah, it, it's a great point, Elliot. I've heard the term like leverage player being thrown in where people are hitting, shooting at people above them so that they get more influence based on the fact they've attacked them. And I'm not saying don't do that. Like, if you want to do that, go do that. It's just so far from my core belief on how I want to be online. Like, my philosophy, my I have it around my office here. My whole team are and have the same thing. Like, I want the internet to be a little bit more positive because I have a platform and a voice on it. And if it goes at the cost of, you know, pulling other people down, you know, you, you know Orla that works for you and her partner, Paul, always says, you know, burning out, blowing out someone else's candle doesn't make yours burn any brighter. And that's how I feel about it. So again, I'm not saying don't do it. Look, do whatever the fuck you want to do. But I wouldn't do it personally just because it's not something that potentially serves me or how I want to be online when it comes to what my overall goal is with this. Yeah, I agree. We're very aligned there. And mindset, you've mentioned it a couple of times already. It's in the title of all three of your books. And it seems to be a key part of your narrative over the past X amount of years or decades. And I'm sure it's been on your mind from yeah, the very beginning of your journey as well. So when was your first encounter with this? Because when you did start, it was Gaelic football. It was getting in shape for girls. And then obviously there must have been a transition point where you realized that it wasn't just training and nutrition. Did that insight come to you as an individual or did it come more when you started working with clients that mindset was more or less the key? 100% working with clients. I didn't get it myself. And when I wrote my first book, The Fitness Mindset, which did way better than I ever imagined. Like that book spent 16 weeks on the Amazon bestseller list. It sold nearly 50,000 copies. It's done incredible, like way better than I ever thought. And that book is effectively the first section, how to get in shape. So everything you need to know, nutrition, training, sleep, et cetera. And the second section is how to stay in shape. And that was the big thing my clients were struggling with at the time, particularly in 2016, 2017, when I was writing it before I released it. And they could get in shape with training, nutrition, combination of both, but they just couldn't stick it. They couldn't stay with it. And I saw what I think in hindsight, and I never want to be like hindsight biased and be like, oh yeah, I 100% knew this. Because I, I suppose when I look back, I didn't. I was serving a gap and filling a need that hadn't been previously served. And it was down to trying to give my clients something that would help them on their journey. And even when I was writing the book, I thought, do you know what? If it only helps my clients, it'll be good for business, good for me in terms of fulfillment levels, and it would be worthwhile doing. So I addressed things like stress management and anxiety and handling the worry and all these things that people end up pressing the fucking button on and you know going down this path of self-sabotage with their food in a very short and succinct way my recent book bikini edge mastering the minds of the real lasting fat loss is an in-depth version of that it's for those who read the first book and thought this is great i actually need to go deep on this then the new one is for that that they're, they're literally helping and building off one another and that was down to serving that need and serving the clients i had currently so i, I don't know what i found that by myself and mindset's been such a big thing for me in all of the books and rewire your mind to my second book isn't a fitness book it's 100 a fulfillment level book for those who are struggling with i don't like my job i'm not happy in my relationships i'm not feeling good about myself and my confidence in my body and all of these things that book went in a different direction and i started to see patterns with people that it wasn't the information that they were struggling with most people knew to lose weight, you need to be in some form of caloric deficit for the majority. Not all do, but a good chunk of the people I was working with knew that. They also knew what foods fell into quote-unquote good and bad categories, something I discourage people doing. But they, they knew that, well, sweet potato, chicken, good, McDonald's, Burger King, bad. Like, again, as I said, I discourage that thinking and putting those foods into good and bad categories. I don't think it's helpful as a long-term strategy. But for the most part, my clientele knew that. But they were still falling off track. 
And when I started to work with more people and I started to unpack some of my own thinking as well, I saw that the mindset was the underlying pillar of success for nearly everything that we do, because it's not what we do, because most people know what they need to do in a lot of cases. Some don't, but most do. It's why you're doing it. And when you flip that from what do I do to why do I do it or why am I doing it, that opens up a whole potential tin of worms with mindset. But it's where the real gold is when it comes to potentially long-term behavioral change and whatever it is you want to do, fitness, training, business, relationships, lifestyle, etc. Mm, and that switch between what to why seems very simple when you say it out loud. But why is it so hard for us to really implement it? Because I think that some people know what to do and they know why they're doing it, but they still can't take action on a consistent basis. So what's the missing link there, do you believe, or in your experience that you've seen? That's a great question, Elliot. Not giving themselves an upfront way of time to make it a habit. And to quote, it's a quote of mine that I live my life by is, you know, Aristotle, we are what we repeatedly do. And, you know, Seneca don't form good habits and become a slave to them. Knowing what to do, knowing why to do it is very important, but there are two sides of a bridge. Your habits and what you do daily is the bridge. It's the link and the steps between the two. And when you build in the right habits every day that will support your end goal on what it is you want to do, and you have this underlying, I know why I'm doing it, and you give yourself enough runway of time to be consistent with that behavioral change, it becomes easier. It's the missing link. It's the missing sauce. Or it's the, the secret sauce when it comes to long-term behavioral change. And it's caveat or it's linked in with enough self-discipline on the front end to make that change. And one of my mentors used to always tell me that successful people do what they have to do regardless of how they feel. And you have to put the whole thing together. Once you know why you're doing something, why you want to lose weight, why you want to get fitter, why you want to start a business, why you want to be financially free, why you want to be in a loving relationship, and you know what the steps are to do it. I have to do X, Y, or Z each day to potentially help me with that end goal. And you do it consistently until it becomes automatic. That's the secret. That's effectively long-term behavioral change. But it's difficult in the beginning. Going from zero to one is way harder than going from one to 10, meaning that the start of anything new is always the most difficult part because you're doing something you haven't consistently done. But if you do it over a period of time, the University of London says it takes 66 days to form a new habit. I know certain studies will go slightly above that, certain below, but you're talking two, three months of consistently making a change with your food, consistently making a change with how you show up in your relationship, consistently making a change with your productivity levels at work, consistently changing your relationship or consistently showing up in a certain way with your training sessions and training consistently in a certain way, whatever your goal is. But after a while, you don't even notice it anymore. And that's where it really kicks in, that compound effect, something I talk about in books as well, that snowball effect. And from the outside, it basically looks like magic. But to you, as the person experiencing this, you've made it a daily habit because you made that self-discipline on the front end to decide that I'm going to do this because it helps my goal. I don't care how I feel, I'm going to do it. And you do that consistently over time, it becomes automatic. I've done it in several areas of my life and covered it in several podcasts and books. And I do it the same thing with clients. They give them enough runway of time and make it a habit. It becomes automatic after a certain point. And you mentioned the 66-day mark, and obviously I'm guessing that's going to be different for every single individual, but if someone is to get started with a health and fitness journey, I think typically anyone who wants to achieve and maintain a result, let's say for fat loss, for example, they're looking at 6 to 12 months easily. So do you have a recommendation on a timeline in which someone should set themselves in order to get themselves going and integrate that habit? Because I think there might be some residual um, residual thought process of that 6 to 12 week plans in the back of our minds still from the men's health magazines and all that type of stuff. And I do think people come in thinking, you know, I've been on point for one to two weeks, like frustrated. I've literally got a post coming out today on Instagram today, like, you know, two to three weeks of treating your body well, it's like, it's not really that much. Like your body needs way more. And like, we, we want to be thinking in terms of months, but I feel that that's still surprisingly a narrative that we haven't quite been able to embed, especially when it comes to general population. I think the starting point matters. And the analogy I use in books is it's easier to dig up a seed from the ground than to knock an oak tree. And that I think is how nutrition works with people. If you've been miseducated or haven't made a lot of conscious awareness around food choices for the last 10 years, 15 years, it's going to be considerably longer to change your behavior and your relationship with food than somebody who is 20, 21, 22, 
and you know who's in decent shape and just is like actually do you know what i actually want to get a bit leaner or i want to lose a bit of body fat now it's 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 way easier so the starting point matters a great deal and the end point also matters in terms of duration of time so the the example i give here and a lot of people can draw this with weight loss but i'll use a running example 26.2 miles is the distance to run a marathon that distance is so far away from some people but is just a little bit of a stretch and exceeding limit for others meaning that if you're someone who runs every day and regularly runs 20 miles it's not that much of a stretch to go 26.2 a little bit of focus training and you could probably power through with your mindset somebody who's never ran a day in their life 26.2 miles feels like they may as well be running to the moon and nutrition is the same somebody who has struggled with their weight for years and is really finding it difficult to adhere to any nutritional strategy is going to have to give themselves a longer runway of time to hit their goal because they might hit their physical goal of weight loss in three months but that's where you get this rebound where people they lose their weight and then they put it back on or they end up putting on more than they started. That's why that long-term perspective matters a great deal versus somebody who doesn't have that miseducation or those years of unsupportive behavioral issues with food and turning to food to escape and turning to food to numb out and all of these things that can be ingrained in people. So I think I would shift the conversation to the starting point and the end point because it matters a great deal. And also... Or what is it you actually want? Because if you have somebody who wants to lose 100 pounds and they have 100 pounds to lose, that's going to impact their life in such a positive way. But if you have somebody who has 10 pounds to lose and they don't really have 10 pounds to lose, they, they have their happiness put into this arbitrary number of, I'll be happy when I've lost 10 pounds. I'm like, you don't have 10 pounds to lose, Patricia. You don't have 10 pounds to lose, Trish. You know, sorry. Like, you know, you have a body fat to lose. Yeah, 100%. But you don't have 10 pounds to lose. And that becomes an education issue then on the difference between losing weight and reducing body fat. They're two different things. You know, don't use the number in your bank account to track how good you are at bed. Those numbers don't correlate. And weight loss and fat loss can be similar with people. So I think ask yourself where your starting point is. Ask yourself where your end point is. And then giving yourself enough runway of time to either hit your goal and maintain it or hit your goal and set another goal or hit your goal and then potentially regress back or regress sounds like a poor choice of words to scale back slightly. Like if you're on this never ending weight loss journey, you're doing it wrong. You know, if you've been dieting half your adult life, you're doing it wrong. It's a chapter in the book. And that's feedback. Failure is not a bad thing. Failure is feedback. So you can take that feedback and potentially find something that's going to be more sustainable for you long-term. But I do think you're right that the long-term approach is always going to be key. It's my philosophy as a coach. I tend to not get the, I want to lose 10 pounds in 10 days people into my programs because that's not my message. I don't preach that. It's so far away from my thought process. Now, some coaches have this short-term fix. And if that's you, awesome. Like not you, Elliot, but you plural people listening that that's cool if that's your business model and you have what i would say is minimizing the downside where you have an exit strategy for people when you have this excessive weight loss or excessive caloric restriction over a period of time like once you have an exit strategy with people i don't necessarily think that's a bad business model just it's not my model and it's not the way i want to serve people so i think it's important for those listening who fall on the side of who's going to potentially help you. You're aligning yourself with either the right coach, the right trainer, the right program, or consuming the right information online that supports that sustainable and long-term approach. Or if you want to go short-term and get that quick fix, you at least know that, well, I'm sacrificing X, Y, and Z for this outcome, but I'm probably not going to be able to stick with that if it's dramatic and excessive over a six-week period where you lose you know, 20 pounds in six weeks. You're probably not going to be able to sustain that. As long as you know that on the front end and you've set your mindset up that, well, actually, I need to have an exit strategy out of this. And you've got the right person, the right coach, the right trainer, the right program that can do that. By all means, do it. But know why you're doing it on the front end. 100%. And then on the note of the clients you've worked with over the years, I'm sure you worked with thousands clients now, or thousands, I should say. And I have two questions off the back of that. And the first is that in your experience, do you believe that the results that people want for their health and fitness are available to just about everyone? Because I think that there's a optimistic idea that everyone can achieve their results. But I think in practice, the reality is, is that that might not be the case. I still remain relatively optimistic, but in your experience, do you think it's actually available? Do you think everyone can tap into their mindset, give themselves a long enough runway? Maybe the question isn't, can they? 
But will they have the ability in order to do that? That's the first question. I would flip it slightly and say, can they versus should they? And can they probably with health and fitness? I think when you get into the realm of, say, sports specific, you're talking, there's a lot of other determining factors that be variables that are going to determine success. With overall health and fitness and getting your physique or body composition to a certain level, most people can hit their version of what's best for them. And that's not to break down a misconception people have. And I tell people straight away when they message this, it's very few now, thankfully. Sometimes people will send me photos, Elliot, and say of a model or a fitness model or a bikini competitor or whatever and say, I want to look like this. And instantly I'd be like, I can't make you look like that. I, I, and they, I won't have an idea what they look like. I was like, I don't even know what you look like. I'm telling you now I can't make you look like that. You're not her. So I can't give you that promise. And I was like, and any coach that promises that is setting you up for an expectation issue down the line. And so straight away, I would get people to compare, well, what's realistic for you in terms of where your body can go based on genetics, et cetera. For example, to use myself, like I can't get skinny regardless of what I do, Elliot. And I ran 100 mile ultra marathons. I have ran marathon to sob, ran through the Arctic where I'm running 100 miles weeks. My body just doesn't have it. I'm muscular, short and stocky, built like a hobbit. I cannot get skinny. It doesn't matter what I do. I can, I can calorie caloric restrict. I can put myself into thousands of calories of deficits and my, I don't get skinny. I just have too much muscle mass from growing up on a farm and my genetics are short and stocky. I also can't go to six feet tall. So like there's limits to what I can do in terms of physical transformation. And I've tried, like I've tried dropping weight before races to make me faster. My body just won't let go of it. doesn't matter how much I do. So there is going to be a genetic limit with people, but I think most can get to their best versions of them. Whether they should then depends. I think if you can prioritize it and you're at a point in your life where your physical fitness or physical aesthetics and the way that you look is the priority, then yeah, you should probably be consistent with your nutrition and be consistent with your training and see how far you can potentially push it. But if you're someone with a really busy job or you've started a new relationship or you've got kids, it might not be the priority right now. And that's cool. That's fine. You look for what I call in the book, minimum effective dose. You look for, well, what's the thing that can keep me taking over with my goal that doesn't come at the cost of putting my life on hold, which is effectively what happens. If you want extreme body transformation, to go from A to Z, where you look like two different people, it takes a lot to do that. It takes a lot of discipline with your nutrition. It takes a lot of intense and structured training. It takes a lot of consistency over time. And I'm not saying don't do that. I've done that myself in the past. And I've had clients do it themselves in the past. But they were in a position where they were single. They were in a job that didn't take that much mental thought. They needed something to work towards because they felt unfulfilled. And this was giving them temporary fulfillment in their life. They were in the perfect trifecta of life to do it, whereas other people aren't. So I would, I think it's important to ask, can you do it? Which the answer is most people I think can based on what their genetic limit is. But whether you should is probably a more important question to ask. I really like that distinction between that. And for those who can and do, what difference have you found between those in the clients that you've worked with compared to those who can and don't? The mindset. They... It's, an, it's another great question. It's, it's the mindset. It's the not having a deep enough reason to do it or and not having the confidence in themselves that they can actually achieve it. With a coach and a trainer, sometimes you're p- being paid to see the future vision of what a client can't see for themselves. And it's your job to get them there and basically hold their hand in the beginning and eventually let them off by themselves. But you're looking to see what they can become before they become it. Because a lot of people don't have that confidence. That's why they're working with a trainer in a program. Not always, but some. It's why they're potentially signed up to a program and a plan. So it's your job to see the future for them. I do this with business people all the time when I'm working masterminds and stuff. I'm like, well, this is where I think your business can go. And even though they might not believe it, it's my job as their coach and their trainer to be like, yeah, you can. Of course you can. Now we just do the individual steps that help you get there. The people who do achieve it, from my experience, success leaves clues, Elliot. They have a very strong reason for doing it. Sometimes it's positive. Sometimes it's fueled by negative. You know, a positive, I want to be able to be healthy and fit and play with my kids to a negative. XYZ called me fat or XYZ said I couldn't do it and I'm using that for fuel. There's legitimacy and benefit potentially in both strategies, you know, whether you 
feel like being powered by something negative or something positive. I think you can use either, but that's a whole different conversation. The success clues is people know why they're doing it and they can either see it for themselves or they're working with somebody or have somebody in their life who can see it for them and gives them the confidence that they can do it. And the people who don't tend to either not have a strong enough why or somebody who will actually show them where they can go or a combination of both. Mm, yeah, I love that. It's, it's so true as well. It's that quite often when clients come to me and I ask them what they want to achieve, I'm like, let's say it wasn't you like for a minute and you weren't basing it on your own abilities. Like, where would you take this in a dream scenario? And all of a sudden they start to see that vision that you can genuinely see for them. But then, you know, behind that is plenty of quote unquote failed attempts at dieting and, you know, uh, them being older and not having the expectations that, well, not even the expectations, but the hopes that their body can do it. And then all of a sudden you're able to break down those walls by saying, well, actually, yeah, you know, let's um, let's have that dream vision in mind. Let's map out a plan to get to where you think you can get to. And then obviously, like you said, it's the job of a good coach with a vision and some also good expectation setting to say, well, can you go there or not? And quite often they can. So I, I love that aspect. And then the second um, thing I wanted to go through here was the fact that mindset is obviously very, very key. And what we've noticed, especially in the last few years, and you've been very open about this as well, is mental health challenges. And that's something I, when I first became personal trainer, was not expecting to run into whatsoever, like, you know, 10 years ago, whenever I qualified. But it's something that I deal with from every one in three clients potentially these days. So with that being said, how are you managing your client's mental health as well as their physical health? And when it comes to getting their mindset in the right place, if they're starting from a place with challenges with their mental well-being, how are you navigating that entire conundrum of things going on? Yeah, as you know, I think we have probably a similar approach here, Elliot, for sure. Based on the needs of the client, like when you're the coach, it's your job to give your clients what they need. You also want to give them what they want, but your real job is to give them what they need. And in some cases, I have completely taken the foot off the pedal with physical health to prioritize somebody's mental health, knowing that over the long term, even over the short term, to be honest, will yield bigger benefits. So I had one girl that I was working with in a program recently who was just balls to the wall stressed out, like between work, family, they were trying for a kid. There was, there was this whole host of these things and she was drilling home the nutrition and training. She was like, I'll dial in my nutrition. I'll dial in my training. And I'm like, look, this isn't where you need to focus. I'm like, we can keep hammering nutrition and we can keep hammering your training. But one, your body's not going to physically respond. Because I would imagine if you did a cortisol test, we didn't do a cortisol test, but from anecdotally speaking to her, I'm like, I bet your cortisol is through the roof because you're stressed all the time. And if anything, your training she was trying to use training as a stressor to help her deal with stress, which is a bit of a catch-22. Short-term acute stressors training can help for chronic stress, but stress and cortisol is cumulative. It doesn't matter where it's coming from. And it can push you into the area of you know immune suppression, libido suppression, all of that from just too much cortisol. And I told her, I said, look, with the nutrition, we'll, we'll keep with the whole foods. Like, don't go binging on McDonald's three times a day. Like, that's not going to help anything you're looking to do. But we need to scale back your training. I was like, I don't even want you to focus on it for two weeks. But I do want you to focus on your stress management. And we, I threw several different ideas at her. Like, when it comes to stress management, it's very much a case of what works for you. Like, talk through it in the keen edge. All the way from, you know, journaling and meditation apps to cold exposure, heat exposure, etc. So we went through a whole plethora of different things that could potentially help with her stress management. And she found things that worked for her. Her anxiety was very much worked when she would journal what was going on in her head because it all came to her at nighttime and this overthinking in these these circles. So when she was able to get down to on, onto a piece of paper before she went to bed or onto the notes on her phone, she was able to help with her sleep, which compounded positively over time as well. She also found that the extreme methods of stress relief worked for her. So meditation apps, she was like, I, I can't get that. It won't work for me. But she would go into a Epsom salt bath and then jump into a cold shower directly after. And that worked really well for her. She was quite an extreme person. Again, hand up, I can completely relate with that. So she found that that works for her. So we spent two weeks just managing her stress levels. And then funnily, what happened was she started to reduce body fat in the absence of training because we still tracked her progress week to week with photos, et cetera. And she's like, how is my body fat down? I'm not working out. I'm like, you are considerably less stressed. 
I was like, you feel better. And then we reintroduced training. So we didn't go straight back into five days a week. We're like, well, look, I want to introduce it twice a week. And then we went three times and we built it up. And then we actually got her body composition to change, which was her goal for coming to me initially. But that's what she wanted. What she needed really was help with mental health and stress management. So that's what I was able to help her with and trying to facilitate that. So I think it's giving clients what they need on the front or back end giving them what they want on the front end. But mental health is a huge thing. It's something that I've touched on in more so my first two books, The Fitness Mindset and Rewire Your Mindset, because it's something I struggled with. But because of that, I have probably more tools than the majority or the average coach, let's say not the majority, the average coach. Because I think when you've been through it yourself, this is where we talked about Paul Dermody earlier. Paul is phenomenal with behavioral change around food because he had such a poor relationship he struggles a little bit with the mental health side as someone who's so good would be naturally grateful. Whereas I'm very good with the mental health side because I struggled tremendously with that. And I'm less good with not, not so much now in the early days, less good with things like behavioral change around food, just because I've experienced it, but not to the extreme Paul had. And everybody has versions of that. Like your mess becomes your message and your secret sauce as a trainer and a coach can lie in your own personal experiences because then you can help people who have similar issues. So when it comes to mental health, that's the person that jumps to mind with me. Yeah, absolutely. And it was one of those things in the past where if someone was like close to the point of emotions or tears, I'm like, can you go cry on someone else's shoulder? But then obviously once you go through it, you're the one who's inviting them onto your shoulder. And it's interesting that also, when you have that insight, and I'm not going to say everyone's going to have it or they aren't a great coach if they if they don't have this, but it's almost like you can't see past it. You know, once you see it, you're like, well, this is almost, I don't know if you then attract those type of people because of you, they're partly it's within the message, even if it's not directly, it's intertwined between your narrative and then you start to attract those type of people. But I almost think that it's one of those things that you can't get around. And I almost feel like you've got this very, very small toolbox when you get started as a personal trainer, if you've not had certain experience in just throwing training nutrition and maybe a few little positive thinking exercises at someone, but then all of a sudden you're like, ah, oh, this is a really appropriate tool for this person and this person, and this person. I think with the prevalence of people's mental health conditions, increasing and then naturally their physical health goes downhill generally as well it's like those are the type of people we're probably going to start working with so yeah it's a really interesting concept and well some of the key things that work for you you mentioned that you're obviously one of those more extreme people and the sauna the the bars and all that type of stuff but what is specifically because if i'm not mistaken and forgive me if i'm getting this wrong in the podcast you did do with paul Dermody, you mentioned that you were going to start therapy was it very recent or was that something that you've and how's that been going yeah it's been going good i'm taking a break from it now so that was that we recorded that podcast for january i'd say and i don't think it went out until february so there was a, a quite a gap between recording and even posting it um yeah i, I did therapy very beneficial but for me, as of now, not something I will do consistently. I think it has to be with therapy to keep a domain dependence. It's a kind of how I approach challenges and races. Like I, I'm the most peculiar endurance athlete probably ever when it comes to how I approach races because I actually don't like running and I don't really like endurance, but I like the physical challenge that comes with it. And I will go the whole year without any desire to do a race, don't care. And then I'll say, cool, I'm going to train for this 100 miler. I'm going to train to run to the Arctic. I'm going to train to run to the Sahara or whatever. And I'll have dedicated two, three, four months in the lead up to that specific race. And then I'll completely come off it and take a break and go train with bodybuilding or CrossFit or something else. And therapy, I think, works similar for me that I can't have it as a constant. It needs to be quite intensive on the front end work through some points and then let it breathe, let it sit, let me reflect. I'm quite good myself with reflecting on things and I try and be a little bit more in tune with what's going on emotionally and what's going on in my head. And I've got amazing people around me outside of it that I can share that with. So therapy has been really beneficial for a different race. It's quite intense and quite harsh, but probably because of my approach, I go a little bit more, right, let's fucking sort shit out now. And it's it's it can be quite overwhelming but i'm taking a break from now i will go back to it again later this year but it's something i'll do in 8 12 16 week patches and then i'll take a break from it let it sit let it breathe reflect and then use it again so it's it's definitely a tool that will be in my arsenal for quite a time to come amazing and two more quick ones that you utilize on a regular basis journaling is huge for me when it comes to getting to the root of why something's bothering me 
And I tend to just have a, what I call a stream of consciousness journal. Like it wouldn't make any sense to anybody else reading it, but it's just me going through what's in my head and writing it all out and going, blah, 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 whatever it is. And sometimes I don't get it, but in a lot of cases, I'll get to the root of, oh shit, that's what's bothering me. And in my experience, 99 out of 100 cases, it's not the thing that's bothering me now. It's an experience from before that I'm currently reliving and it's just setting me off as a trigger. And journaling helps me get to the root of that. So that's a big one for me. The final one then is... I tend to reflect each day on the things that are important to me. And there was a time when I used to document all this in either a book or a notepad or on my phone, but now I just do it in my head. So normally I'll lie down at the end of the day and before I go to sleep, I go through the things that were important to me that day and how I did. And, you know, if it was a day with my daughter where we had a very specific day, I will ask the question, well, how was I as a dad today? How did I show up as a dad today on a scale of one to 10? And I tend to work off the kind of Tim Ferriss philosophy that you're not allowed to use a seven. So it has to be an eight or a six or higher or lower. It's so, so beneficial because otherwise you're like, oh, seven. Everything's a fucking seven. So I'll, I won't look at it critically. There'll be days when I'm like, man, you were a six today or you were a five today. You need to be better tomorrow. And there'll be other days I'm like, I was a nine today. I'm so happy. We got to have an amazing day. And I don't get high on my own supply and I reset and go again the next day. And I did the same thing with my partner. What was I like as a partner today? Some days I think subjectively I was good and other days I'm like, I could definitely be better. And the same with work stuff. Today is very much a work day. I've got four podcasts today. I've got writings and program stuff. So at the end of the day, I'll do a reflection on that side and I'll probably be a nine out of 10 on the business side, but I might be a bit lower on the other areas because I've been shifting focus. That's fine as well. It's just bringing awareness to it so it doesn't happen unconsciously and for too often because I don't mind these dedicated days to quote-unquote ranking fitness, the online brand, but just as long as it doesn't come at the cost of other things. So I do that nearly every night without fail on reflection. It's something I just do in my head now, kind of a mental checklist before bed and doing that one to 10 scale and then just making it over for the following day. Like, you know, you're just focusing on the day. The days add into weeks, the weeks into months, the months into years. Like that's effectively just how I run my life and that's my way of staying on top of it. I love that. I gotta steal it. I really, I really like that one. <laughs> <laughs> I got a couple of final questions that are kind of big hitters, so forgive me for leaving this right to the end. But where do you feel the world of health and fitness will be in around 50 years' time? It's a really interesting one. I have a juxtaposition between the way we're impacted by technology and the way things are potentially going with science, whether it be nutritional, fitness, physical science, etc., mixed with We've been on this planet and evolved species for more than 10,000 years and have behavioral issues that we're not going to address in 50 to 100 years. And all the problems we have today are probably going to be problems in 50 years. The answer is, I think we're going to be smack bang in the middle like we are today. There's going to be so much scientific advancement. And that sounds like such a, probably a bit of a nihilistic way of answering is like, we won't progress at all. But there'll be such a shift because of technology. Think about where it is now. I, I use the, the Lindy effect. It's a, a phrase from the scene, Nicholas Taleb, that you can tell how well a book's going to do by how long it's been out. So, you know, if a book's been on the shelf for 10 years, it's probably going to be on the shelf for another 10 years. And, you know, he does the same for restaurants and businesses. And I think physical fitness and nutrition will be the same. It's not a million miles away 50 years ago in terms of how bodies are, but it's a world away if you look at it in terms of technology. But yet we still have the same issues. We still have some of the same problems. Some people undereat, some people overeat. People have issues with potentially food or body dysmorphia to a degree. It's just these things weren't as prevalent because we couldn't document them 50 years ago. And I think in 50 years from now, it's probably going to be similar. The technology will advance. But with that, to pull on the other side, evolutionary, we're going to be the same species. Things aren't going to change that much in my mind. Again, this is just an opinion so far outside my circle of competence. I can only offer an opinion on this. But I think it'll be much of a much as it'll be the same. Technology will advance, but species us as human beings will be the same and will be those who will gravitate towards the technology and be using it like they are today and others who are struggling to you know combat basic food relationship day to day i don't think i'll change that much yeah i've never had that answer before i like that i think it's i don't think it's nihilistic i think nihilistic is saying we're going we're going to regress we're going to get even worse the world's not even going to be around in 50 years so i think that's pretty fair and the last question i have for you is what personal impact would you like to make on the health and fitness industry let's say your days are over in many many years to come and what impact you want to leave what do you want brian Keane to be remembered for it's so weird you ask that question because if you would ask me this any time outside of the last two years 
I would have had a very polished answer for you. And now uh, this is going to sound so weird as someone who has an influence online and podcasts and books. I don't think it matters. I, I think it, I, I don't think it makes a bit of fucking difference. What I say, what I do, there's a good chance in 50, hundred years outside of my circle and my daughter and her kids and other kids we potentially have and all of that. No one's going to care who Brian Keane fitness was. No one's going to care who Brian Keane was. And that sounds probably more nihilistic than the last thing I said, but equally one of the most freeing things for me, because it allows me to stay very creative and in the present day to day, because once my work, and when I consider my work, I think the podcast, books, everything I do online, once it's out there, it's not mine anymore. It doesn't belong to me anymore. And the interpretation of how it's going to be perceived and consumed isn't up to me. I'm only in control of the creative process while I'm writing, while I'm recording, while I'm doing something. And I tend to focus my attention on that. And the freedom comes from knowing that it doesn't really matter and it's not even mine once it's out there. So once I've done something, once I've written a book, I tend to remove a lot of the emotion from it. It's nice when people are like, you look, your book had such a positive impact on me. I loved it. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's really nice. But the same way that someone's like, your book is fucking shit. I used it as the cat's toilet paper. I'd be like, all right, do you know what? Fuck it. It wasn't for you. That's, that's cool. And that freedom, like I've always said, I want the world to be a little bit better because I was here. And that was my impact online. But that has flipped into my own personal space and the people who I can influence around me, my partner, my daughter, my parents, my sister, my best friends. That's where I spend most of my time, energy and focus, because effectively, they're the people who will cry when I die. And they're the relationships I want to nurture. And as much as I love what I do, and I fucking love my job, I love what I do, recording podcasts, writing books, working with people in programs, I love it. I'm so grateful that I get to do what I do. And I would do everything I'm doing now for free. And I'm so fortunate that I get paid for it. But at the end of the day, it's not. it doesn't matter. You could pull it all from me tomorrow. And as long as the people closest to me were healthy and well, I'd be fine. Brian, thank you so much for your thoughtfulness, your transparency, and your maintenance of integrity when it comes to the narrative and who you are. I really do appreciate it. For anyone who's interested in finding your books, your podcast, and everything you put out online, where can they find you? Thanks so much, Elliot. This was a blast. I really enjoyed this conversation. Some great questions there too. So thought-provoking on my side. So thank you, mate. Uh, For those who want to check me out, uh, the Brian Keane podcast, probably the best place. We have a slightly different format to you. I know you've interviews and a lot of the solo short sound bites for people that they can consume it and consume several in one go. I have more long-form interviews or long-form solo episodes, but for those who are interested in that kind of content, similar to this conversation, uh, the Brian Keane podcast available on all platforms, the book, The Keen Edge, Mastering the Mindset for Elastic Fat Loss, to rewire your mindset, the fitness mindset available everywhere online, offline. If you're in Ireland and the UK, I'm not sure about different countries all over the place, um, but available in, in anywhere online, book depository, Amazon, etc. Perfect. It will all be in the show notes below. Thank you again, Brian. I really appreciate it, your time and your words. And I'm sure everyone's going to take a lot of value from this episode. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks so much again, Elliot. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.